What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Pringle, and today I discuss the new grad PT recipe for success. What's up, guys? Welcome to another edition of the Clinical Mastermind Podcast. Uh, it's good to be back. It's been a couple months. And uh, at first, it was just being really busy with the clinic, adding a bunch of new practitioners and a bunch of other work on that end that was taking a lot of my time. And most recently, it's been uh, the coronavirus and everything involved with shutting down the clinic and uh, preparing things on the back end to make sure that we're in the best position when we reopen. And now that we've kind of passed that phase now, we're, we're just uh, a month out from when uh, this all hit the fan, um, it's been a really good opportunity to reflect on what we're doing um, as practitioners and how we can make the most of our time. And that's not lost on me. Obviously, I've been putting a lot of work to make sure the clinic is in the right position. But there's a unique opportunity for a lot of practitioners at this juncture to make the most of their free time to learn to accelerate. There's a lot of reason to believe there'll be at least some reduction in the demand when it comes to uh, rehabilitation services in the short term after uh, things reopen following the virus lockdown. And as a result, there's going to be a plethora of supply, which means that you need to find a way to differentiate yourself. And that means improving as a practitioner, making the most of the time that you've got, um, maybe developing new connections um, as a, from a marketing standpoint or as a business if you own one or are a participant in that. So there's some really interesting opportunities that we can use to take advantage of this time. And I encourage everyone to find their own way. In uh, that vain, uh, I got a chance to uh, have a great video conversation with uh, a, a relatively new grad. He graduated in 2019, and uh, he just wanted to pick my brain on everything from where I came from, um, the, my background, my um, you know first kind of years after graduating, what were the kind of watershed moments where I learned a lot or realized something new and put it all together. And I'm obviously very happy to share all these stories and help as many practitioners in any way that I can. And this is a really great opportunity to do that. So you'll hear him start by asking me about my history. We'll dive into a little bit of the specifics about the clinics, such as my use of red cord. But that transitions into a much more interesting conversation about the, the fundamental principles that I use in treatment in clinic that my clinic is built on. And then it transitions even further into applying those principles to specific cases that he has in mind um, that have given him challenges in the first six, eight months of his practice. So a cool opportunity for you to see me talk with someone who's relatively uh, new in, uh, in the field, as opposed to some of the other conversations that are uh, more with kind of experts in our field. And the interesting thing is there's a lot of similarities, but you're going to notice that I try to break it down in a way that's really digestible and tangible for him as he's trying to find his own way. Uh, at the end of it, you know, we, we had a, a lot of really valuable moments to share, a lot of individual clips that are going to come out. And uh, I encourage you to kind of check me out on, on Instagram where I'm going to be posting those more regularly. You can reach me at dpringle.physio. Um, I'm also going to post a full video version on YouTube. It's up there right now, and that's youtube.com slash dpringle without an E. That's D-P-R-I-N-G-L. Um, and for more information, you can also uh, reach out to me at dan at clinicalmastermind.com. Clinicalmastermind.com is my website where I've got some other mentorship content, and uh, you can subscribe for uh, some email stuff that's going to come out in the next little while. So uh, either way, uh, now's a perfect opportunity for you to reach out to me, get in touch with me, and uh, let's start a conversation and let's share uh, some really valuable professional development information at a time when people need it most. Uh, so with that being said, please enjoy the podcast. Let's start with you just telling me a little bit about yourself, um, why you got into physio, when you started your clinic and stuff like that. Yeah, man, I'm happy to share. Um, so I was I was an athlete growing up. That was my it's basically the only thing that I cared about. I grew up playing playing soccer, playing hockey, basketball, tennis, like you name it. Like I played it whenever I could um, pretty competitively for the most part. So sports was always my life, but I was starting to realize I wasn't going to be a pro athlete in any sport. And so when we did careers class in high school, I got a chance to shadow um, actually the, the athletic therapist for the Leafs. Um, and so it was part of a project, like on a job or a profession you might be interested in. And so I spent all morning with him. He's working on a couple of Leafs. He's wearing a tracksuit in a gym with music in the background, talking about the game last night. And I'm sitting there being like, I want to be involved in sports. This is all I know and care about at like 14, 15 years old. So this is perfect for me. I was like, should I be a coach? Should I be a 
uh, a commentator? Should I be a GM or an agent? Like, what can I do? And then he, he basically was um, doing everything that I thought I'd be interested in, you know, working with my hands, um, involved in sports, some science, some like per- interpersonal stuff. So it was right then and there. I'm like, I want to be in sports medicine. Um, and then it kind of evolved. Like at the, at the time, um, I, I think over the next couple of years throughout high school, it morphed into, well, if you're going to be in sports medicine, like why not be like the top dog? Like why don't you become the sports doc? You could be like the sports dog for the Leafs would be like, or the, or the Raptors or whatever it would be like the dream. And, uh, so that was kind of the direction that I started to head in. So I went to, uh, I went to Western for my undergrad and I didn't do kin, which, you know, as you know, most, most physios end up doing. So I ended up doing the biomedical science program at Western. So it was a lot of physiology, a lot of core sciences, and then it got more specialized as we went up. And I was always interested in the exercise component, um, particularly, but at the end of the day, it, it, um, it kind of morphed into that direction. And so I, uh, I, at the end of my, my going into my fourth year, I went through the process, MCAT, whatever applied to med school, um, and then did the applications and I was kind of right on the bubble with my marks and with the MCAT. And so I was going into the Christmas break being like, I'm about to graduate in a couple months. What the hell am I going to do if I don't get in? So I got a chance to meet a woman at the Fowler Kennedy clinic at Western. And she, uh, was a physio who'd gone back to school to become a, um, to become a sports doctor. And so I got a chance to sit down with her and I was just chatting, you know, asking a bunch of different questions about the med school application and what her job entailed. And then I asked, like, if I don't get in, what options are out there? Should I do research? Should I take a year off and volunteer? Should I do a master's? Like, what, what are my options? And she said, did you ever think of physio? And I was like, I don't know how I didn't think of physio. Like, oh man, because I had originally been interested because of the AT. I wanted to do more hands-on, which for the first time I was learning from her, I didn't get to do that much hands-on if I was a sports doc relative to what I had anticipated. And I'd even shadowed the physio to get a reference letter from med school. Didn't even occur to me. Yeah, so one of my references for the med school application was from a physio, but it didn't even occur to me at the time. So anyways, long story short, I got interviews but didn't get into med school. But I applied quickly. I had like a week or two max from when I met this woman to when the physio apps were due. So I had to scramble, get that stuff in. I got in and then I went to U of T and I got there on the first day and I looked around and they were all people like me. They weren't the people in my undergrad program who were going to be doctors or researchers and did nothing but study. They were the people like, you know, from your class, from your colleagues, or your friends, like people who were outgoing and actually had time for a bit of a social life. And uh, I love playing sports and were just like cared about each other and weren't so cutthroat. Like it was an amazing, amazing opportunity to see like, okay, these are my people. And it just like clicked and the rest is kind of history. I'm so glad that I didn't get into med school. You don't hear many people say that, but that's for sure my story. Yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have gone. Like, I wasn't, I was, uh, I was still pretty convinced that that was, was like a good option for me. And I don't think I would have been able to turn down med school. You know what I mean? Like, that would have been hard to be like, nah, I think I'm going to be a physio. Cause I wasn't even, I don't even think I knew really what either would look like for me as a career five, 10 years down the road. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I was, I don't think I had enough experience, you know, everyone says like volunteer and spend time learning from these different people and see yourself in their shoes or whatever to figure out your career. I don't think I really, I went through the motions on that, but I don't think I ever really let it sink in. So I would have taken the med school thing and uh, actually um, the uh, the director of the master acupuncture program that I've been, I took and that I've been teaching at for now, like six years. I told him this whole story one time. And uh, he's like, well, we lost a mediocre doctor and gained an excellent physiotherapist. <laughs> and uh, so, I was, yeah, so I was like, you know what, man, I'll take that. I'll take this as a compliment for sure. Because I, as I said, I'm lucky that I didn't get in and not, not mediocre because maybe I wouldn't have been good at it, but mediocre because it wasn't my calling. It wasn't what was right for me and my personality and my, my, my passions, you know, so I would have, could have been fine at it, but I wouldn't have been as happy and as fulfilled as what I do now. So pretty nice. Lucky. Yeah. What about you? How do you end up in physio? Um, well, same route. I started just in high school playing a lot of sports and stuff. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So then I went to York for kin because they had like the exercise component plus sciences. So I'm like, oh, yeah. this might be interesting. So I went there for kin. And then after they, there was a little workshop that showed different career choices after. So there was OT, PT, like speech and stuff like that. 
And I'm like, oh, okay, physio seems like it has my interest in mind, has sports, exercise, stuff like that. And ironically, I've never volunteered in a clinic or anything. I was in Ottawa because my sister lived over there. So I was volunteering in a complex continuing care hospital. So working with elderly patients, just trying to get them to walk and do some sitting regular exercise. Um, but I knew I liked the sports aspect of it. So I knew once or if I got in that I'd, I'd enjoy going into a clinic. Yeah. So then I applied, got in, and then just graduated this past November. Sounds good, man. Oh, just as November. All right. So you're, you're fresh out. Did you, do you have a job already? Are yeah. Working? Yeah, I'm working in Cambridge at Aramasa Physio. Okay, right on. And uh, so what's the, what's the first, uh, I guess, almost six months? What's it been like? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, a lot of growing in there because as a new grad, you're trying to just learn how to navigate uh, handling patients and what to do when you have complex cases and just trying to improve your skills over time. Yeah. Um, so it's been good so far. I've taken some courses as well, like concussion management, um, some soft tissue courses and stuff like that. Just trying to improve my skills and get better over time. Yeah, I mean, early on, that's definitely the way you have to go with it is, is um, dedicate every minute, every ener- every bit of energy you've got, any money you're getting in as much as you can to getting better early on. It, it definitely sets you apart um, and being smart about how you do that, right? That's that's the biggest piece of feedback that, that, that I can give people is um, there's lots of people who take courses because they're supposed to, because their friends did, because it seems like the thing to do, um, because it's the most popular one. But you want to do your research. You want to understand that it's right for you, that it that it's going to lead to what you're looking for down the road. It's exactly the opposite of what I did when I shadowed that physio and then decided to apply to med school without thinking about physio. Like the exact opposite of that. So when you're talking to people like me or like your, the clinic owners or clinic directors or other colleagues, you know, ask them their advice and then take it or, or kind of follow up or reflect on yourself and figure out if it, whether it fits what you're looking for. Because so many people... Um, do the kind of the easy downstream option and don't realize that if they just did a little bit more work, spend a little bit more time, then it would open so many more doors for them. And, and I think this is a good opportunity for us to think that way because no one's working. We have time. You know, a bunch of people are trying to figure out how to kill time. They're, um, you know, watching Netflix. They're, you know, trying to stay in shape, which is great. But they have a big opportunity when everyone else is sitting on their ass. Someone out there is going to be spending every minute getting better at what they do. And when there's a slightly lesser demand for physio, when we come back to, to clinic, you know, the people who are getting the better results and the people who have differentiated themselves are going to do better. So we have to be in that, we have to think about it that way. We can't just rely on, um, on things going back the way they were. We, we can take control. And, and that's, that's something that I've always tried to do. And I think that's been able to separate me over the years. All right. Yeah. So, um, in terms of courses, what kind of courses have you taken and what was the progression? So what did you start out taking and then uh, are you still currently taking courses? Yeah, I mean, my the way I, that I learn has definitely evolved over time um, based on a combination of um, what I know, what I'm missing, what's new, what's available, like that kind of stuff. Um, the first course I took I took two courses right as right before I graduated I think I took a, I took a soft tissue release course uh, which was good because it up until then I had no other hands-on skills other than whatever mobs we were taught in school was that with Jim Bellotta yeah same guy doing the same thing 10 years later he's still there yeah um but you know good for him like it, it was helpful it was some tangible skill that I didn't have before it's a lot cheaper than ART and gets most of the same effects um in a two-day course or one day or whatever it was so it was it was helpful uh for sure as as a starting point and and especially coming out into the clinic like not knowing what the hell to do and not feeling confident at least I had something to you know do while I was trying to educate them you know I, I could kind of implement it early on uh, and then I did a, I did like a taping course. I think it was mostly just athletic taping, like ankles and patella and whatever, uh, wrist or something, thumb, um, which was kind of, you know, I didn't really use in the clinic much. But the advantage of that was I did end up working with teams starting um, the summer after I graduated. Um, and just like I, uh, a friend, yeah, a friend of mine uh, played rugby. 
And so they were looking for somebody. I went back to my, my high school and they were looking for somebody to help out one day a week. So between the, the rugby team on Saturdays where I'd spent three or four hours with them every Saturday all summer. And then the school, which I was doing one day a week for two hours or something, you know, having the hands-on skills helped. So the taping was great. Uh, a little bit of soft tissue release was good. And I got some on-field experience, which I I really uh, value. And, and I did it for about for about six years and um, definitely having seen people on the field and dealing with injuries acutely, but also, you know, when they're, they're able to play, but it still kind of bothers them, it gives you perspective on when you see them in the clinic, what they might look like on the field. Whereas if we only work in the clinic, you don't get to see what they look like when they're actually sprinting or when they're cutting or when they're jogging or when it starts to tighten up, you know, how tight does it get? What does it feel? How, what is the tightness and how does it change, you know? So I think it's really valuable to have that um, that perspective, and and I really encourage people to find a way to get at least a little bit of that over time. Perfect. Yeah. And then um, from that, when did you take the medical acupuncture? Because I know that's a big component of your treatment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so I took that in the fall after I graduated. So about a year later. Um, and I wonder did I take anything before that? Mm. No, I don't think I did. Oh, do you know what? I might have done. I might have done like a K tape course or some. I don't know if, if it was branded to K tape or what it was, but I took some sort of kinesio taping type course the, that summer after I graduated. And then in the fall, I took the um, I took the, the the main program at McMaster. And um, the reason I decided to ultimately take it, I knew some friends who had taken it in the fall right after graduating, and then the in January of the of the next year. And then I was golfing with two uh, classmates of mine and one of them had taken the course. And he, he's one of those guys that get really gung-ho with whatever new technique or approach, whatever it was. But he was going like off on, you could put a needle into his muscles and release trigger points and then it just melts away. And he was going on and on. And enough that like, I was like, all right, well, there's probably something to this, but like, I can't take his word. So I went to the website, I read a bunch of information about it. It really resonated with me, especially because I had the physiology background, which is my undergrad is like a specialization in physiology. So rather than it being, like I knew nothing about anatomy. I didn't take any anatomy in undergrad. I knew nothing. I couldn't tell you quadriceps from hamstrings, like nothing. Um, even though I was an athlete, right? And so I didn't have that background, but I knew physiology. I knew neurophys. I knew exercise phys. I knew, you know, what happened at the cellular level and all this stuff. And all that, that played into a lot of what the McMaster course seemed to be about. Um, and the biggest catch for most people with that course is it's like, it was like $7,000. I think there was a student discount. That was a bit, I think it was 55, 5,800 at the time, but it was still like, all right, this is not, this is not cheap. Um, and for some reason, I can't recall exactly what it was, but it wasn't just my buddy going off on it. But for some reason, I was like, okay, if it's this much more expensive, it's got to be worth it. I don't know what possessed me to think that way. When most people look at it and they're like, oh my God, like how could I ever get my money out of this? For some reason, I thought the opposite. And I was like, okay, if it's this expensive, there's got to be a reason why this many people keep taking it and it's been around for so long. So that was, and I still had like, like OSAP from, from physio school and stuff like that, but I, I pulled the trigger and it was career altering to say the least. It's, it's changed my perspective on everything. Um, it's given me a lot of tools. It's what the clinic is built on essentially. And, and that's not just the actual putting the needles. It's more the philosophy that, that is, is, um, is taught and shared through the MAC course that is so valuable to understanding pain and movement problems and, and uh, it's been it's been definitely the the game changer for me over my career. Are you able to speak about some of the concepts and stuff that you do learn from that course that you, you use even if you don't um, needle someone? Yeah, yeah. So the the overarching approach um, of the of the course of the material it, it's it's called the neurofunctional approach, which in short says that it's the nervous system more than any other structural component that influences the way that we move, our ability to function, our ability to adapt to the demands um, that we put upon our body. So when we see someone who has, say, weakness, um, when we test them in shoulder flexion, for instance, um, rather than assuming, oh, you know, anterior deltoid or long head of biceps, whatever is, is like weak or 
Um, there's not enough muscle there. We need to strengthen it. The question becomes, okay, well, why, why isn't the nervous system recruiting that muscle effectively? Um, and if we can solve that problem, so to speak, why that connection isn't working properly, then we can improve the output of that of the body and restore that that strength response so to speak right the ability to resist that movement so rather than saying we need to build more muscle fibers and we need to slowly increase its tolerance and all that kind of stuff a lot of times it's just restore connectivity um acupuncture electroacupuncture is a great way to do that but if we just understand from taking a step backwards and saying it's not all about just building muscle it's about restoring connectivity of the system the nervous system in particular it goes a long way um, the other way to think of it from the non-strength like, standpoint is pain. A lot of the pain that we, the way we think about pain, and I know pain scientists kind of evolved the way that we think about it um, even in the last 10 years since I was in school learning, and, and even then in the last little while, and there's more resources in that effect. Not that it didn't exist, but it's much more robust now. Um, the idea there that you know pain is inflammation and pain is overload isn't always necessarily true. All we know if someone has symptoms of pain is that a C-fiber is sending a signal, like a nociceptor is sending a signal to the along the, the peripheral nerves, the spinal cord to the brain that's being interpreted as pain. Sometimes there's not even a C-fiber signal. It's just the brain is doing its own thing or somewhere along that chain is hyperexcitable. So the relevance there is that rather than us just focusing on the, at the source point, that nociceptor, that area of pain, if we understand how that signal is being transmitted and experienced through the body, then we have a lot more exposure. So rather than blaming the muscle or the joint or calling it inflammation, we can think about how the nervous system plays a role in the transmission and experience of pain. And if we can influence that, we can affect the strength, as I mentioned earlier, but also, also the symptoms. So it's a little bit um, it's much more complex, but it actually simplifies things because it actually, if we fall back to how is the nervous system influencing this person's experience of pain and, and their capabilities of movement, it actually simplifies our, our concept, even though there's a big number of things under that umbrella. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sort it of? does. So would, in that approach, would you, I know you said that it's, even if you don't use Accu, you still can get kind of the same effects. Hmm. Um, but using that approach, I said that the nervous system is the one that maybe is recruiting more of the muscle fibers to create more strength. Mm -hmm. If you don't use the needles and use the electricity, what other ways can you influence that? Yeah. And, and that's where, that's where a lot of the exercise, uh, components come in because what we want to try to do is we want to try to create rather than just, um, increasing the load, we want to try to create the connectivity of the system. So think about something that is. Uh, a good example is the difference between closed kinetic and open kinetic chain. So one of the values of closed kinetic chain exercises, imagine like a squat versus a, you know, uh, um, just a quads machine, right? Is that you're connected to the ground. You've got afferent information. You've got sensory information from the foot that's connecting the whole unit as a chain. They all have to work in sequence. Does that make sense? So by doing the functional movements that we know is really beneficial, for the for the individual one of the best um one of the reasons we get such good results with functional movements versus non-functional movements if you will is that we connect more of the system they have to work as a unit we're training the nervous system to recruit these muscles in sequence so we're not necessarily changing new muscle fibers i think you learn in school the first six weeks of any sort of you know, a workout strengthening program, a lot of it isn't new muscle fibers, right? A lot of it is more neurological connections. So by us doing more functional based movements, more connect, closed kinetic chain based movements, more movements that are, again, for upper extremity, a lot of hanging stuff or pressing stuff versus, you know, open kinetic chain, rotational things. The more we do that connects the body as it's kind of designed, so to speak, the more information to the nervous system, which means the more connectivity we are creating, which means it's now more adaptable to whatever we're trying to do day to day. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what are some examples of some upper extremity exercises that you give someone, um, let's say if they had some sort of shoulder pain yeah. um, and you're just trying to load them through some upper extremity exercises as opposed to just 
external rotation at the side or at 90 and stuff like that? Yeah, so it depends, right? If someone's got some tendinopathy type problems or even, even you know, like clear tendon related issues where we need to change the quality of the tissue and we were pretty confident in that diagnosis, then straight loading in those planes is useful. It's as part of a kind of a loading strategy, but that doesn't address the nervous system piece as well as we talked about, right? So that's where the other stuff, the, you know, presses, whether it's the push up plus type movements, even, even with on, on knees and all fours, um, that's where hanging stuff is really valuable because the body's meant, you know, is designed upper extremity wise to be able to tolerate that position. So being able to just hold and engage and pull, et cetera, pulling with bands in different planes, pulling down and up and these different directions where you're attached in the scapular planes and otherwise is a really great way to engage those muscles around the area. So if you think about someone with impingement, first of all, I'm not a big fan of that term because what happens is we stop talking about, we said earlier, it's more about the nervous system than any structural component. So it's not a physical impingement many times. It's just an irritation of the C fibers and the nerves in that area. So we want to try to improve the function of the nervous system as a whole. We don't necessarily need to like traction and loosen it up. We want to just make sure that the connectivity of the scapular muscles of the rotator cuff muscles as a unit is improved and functioning better. So a lot of weight bearing, a lot of pulling in different planes to work on scapular control. Um, and then thinking about the neck because all the nerves that go to the shoulder come off of the neck. So from a functional standpoint, is there good control of deep neck flexors? Is there rotational cap uh, capabilities on both sides? If not, you know, what is the soft tissue component there that is creating the dysfunction? Rather than thinking about mobbing a joint, let's think about how we can influence the soft tissues that are allowing or restricting that movement to happen. So we move away from the structure of the joint and we move away from a lot of that kind of um, mentality and think about how's a unit in the system working as a whole? What's the soft tissue component? What's the neurological component? Um, and how are they engaging as a unit in a way that's going to be able to handle the forces that we're putting on? All right. And then, on, uh, to follow that, you use the red core system, red cord yeah, yeah, for red that? Cord. Yeah, red core is really cool. Um, so yeah, as, as you were, we were talking about that earlier, so it's the, uh, it was the first one in Toronto. There's only, um, I think it was four now in the city. Uh, and ours is the only one that's uh, like fully um, attached to the ceiling without like a frame around it that kind of makes it a bit cumbersome to use. Um, I, I originally um, saw it in Spain. I was teaching in Spain in 2016 and um, I was visiting some clinics and stuff like that. And it's for whatever reason, it's from Norway originally, but it's really popular in Spain. And um, they were talking a lot about how it influenced the nervous system. And it was this functional based training system. And at the time I was about, I was thinking about opening uh, the newest, uh, the, the kind of flagship clinic location I've got right now. And I was thinking about a Pilates machine or a reformer or something that was more on the functional movement side that we could add to improve results. And then they're telling me about this thing and it's a neurological and it's um, having a big influence on, um, on proprioception and afferent information. And I already had built this, this model, you know, from the Mac course originally that was nervous system based with our acupuncture and our hands-on and our assessment approach. It all kind of fits into that. This was a logical fit. So it um, turned out that about six months after I came back from Spain, uh, the first course ever run in Canada was being taking place in Toronto. So, of course, signed up and brought one of my physios, physios along at the time. And um, and right away, we realized what the power was because they were talking about getting the same results with just exercise and red cord that we were getting with acupuncture. And I looked at my other physio and I was like, imagine if we put both of those together at the same time. And uh, and so the results have been exactly that. We, we use them in combination with each other, one before the other, usually acupuncture first and exercise-based stuff with red cord second. But it's all about kind of giving the nervous system, you know, more resources to adapt to what we're trying to do. So with acupuncture, we try to reset the nervous system to help to improve that connectivity, both after information, like things like proprioception, but also things like pain, and then E for information like motor. We're trying to influence both. But once you've got that, a lot of the questions people say is, okay, well, great, you did ACU, like, but by itself, like, is that helpful? Like, don't you have to retrain everybody? And in an ideal world, yes, sometimes it's, it's great. Like by itself, acupuncture, uh, the way we use it is fantastic um, in and of itself to, to create change and pain and movement. It's, it's awesome. And a lot of really lasting results. 
But for some people, and, and ideally for every person, we can augment that result by getting them to use that new range of motion in a more functional way. And what Red Cord allows us to do essentially is offload some of the body weight so that they can do functional movements without compensation patterns. We can identify them and get rid of the compensation patterns. And so they're using a bunch of a bunch of their different muscle groups that are connected and supposed to work together. And we're able to use those in a functional movement all at the same time. And as we said earlier, that connectivity of a closed kinetic chain movement where the bunch of the areas are working all at one, especially after we just did acupuncture to kind of get everything stimulated and engaged in a, in a new way is, you know, a double bonus for us. So it's, um, it's a really cool, uh, to give you an example, one of the, the easiest ones I can explain is um, like a bridging movement. So you there? Yeah. So um, when we do a typical, like a glute bridge, right? The idea is for it to be primarily glute. Right. But what ends up happening is you've seen, I'm sure, is there's a lot of back extensors and there's a lot of hamstrings. And sometimes people like the glutes are literally doing nothing and it's all hamstring or all back and we're trying to cue them. And... Exactly. Right. And, and we're not able to get what we're trying to get. And the goal there is being missed because we're focusing on those that those other muscle groups are taking over. So as, as ignoring the acupuncture side of things, which can be helpful in and of itself. And just thinking about red cord for a second, if we're capable of. Um, offloading some of their body weight. So when we do red cord, uh, like a glute bridge in red cord, their feet aren't touching the ground. They're actually back of their knee, usually, is suspended underneath two straps that are hanging from the ceiling. And their feet are basically straight out, and underneath their knee is going to be that strap. Now, what we're going to be able to do is actually put a second strap kind of underneath their hips with bungee cords, and we can take off a, take off a portion of their body weight. So if we take off a portion of their body weight, what that means is it's now easier for them to do the movement. So we can also get underneath their back and their hamstrings and cue to make sure that they don't engage them. In fact, you can get, to, get them to engage the opposite, the antagonist. So we'll get them to use their like their abs, their rectus, and, and TA, and we'll get them to use their quads to make sure their knees are totally straight. If we do both of those things, now the hamstrings and the back extensors aren't working as much, certainly as not as much at all. So now we've got this combination of anterior muscles in the, in the abdominals, we've got glutes, and we've got quads. That's a nice functional pattern for a squat or something like that. It's having those all engaged at the same time, right? So we're training the movement and we're teaching their body not to use, not to overuse their lumbar extensors and their hamstrings when doing a functional movement like a squat. So that's the advantage of us using that system. Uh, because it teaches a pattern that the nervous system is now able to repeat in functional movements day to day without them having to be aware of it. Like they don't have to think, okay, how am I, how's my core engaging when I'm walking or, you know, sitting down or, or going to the washroom or whatever, their body is starting to be retrained to do it. And obviously repetition helps, but we're, we're noticing that within a short period of time, we're getting really lasting changes in the way people move. And, and it's pretty cool. Exactly. And that's not to say everything needs to work in a certain order all the time. It's, the body doesn't work as linearly as that. There's not one orientation for the body. We know that, right? There's so many ways to move, but there are more efficient ways to move. And if we can create a better engagement pattern so that they can move more efficiently, then it's less stress on the areas that are being overworked or complaining or uh, dysfunctional or damaged in many people's cases. Right. Perfect. Yeah. Wow. That's a, I've never heard of that system before until I looked at, uh, I followed your page and then I seen it on kind of yeah. your page there and your website and stuff like that. And I'm yeah. like, Whoa, never seen this concept before ever. Yeah. No, it's cool, man. It's, um, we, we have most of our physios, physios are trained in it. We use it as part of the rehab process, right? We do a lot of stuff in the treatment room and then that's a big part of the stuff we can do in clinic. And then we give them homework based on that. Although we do, you know, obviously if it's an ankle, it's not quite as beneficial to use red cord as it would be for hip, back, neck, scapular stuff. There's, I mean, it does a lot, but um, say it was ankle, like we have, we do all the other ankle rehab stuff that, you know, a lot of people do uh, with some changes and exceptions, obviously. But um, 
we, we try to integrate it into everything we do with the physio side. And then we have trainers at the clinic as well. And so in that respect, they'll use it as a warm-up, as an activation tool. So say they're going to work on the squat pattern as part of their workout program. Well, they might start them in red cord doing the drill I just described to you as a way to prime the body so that they're in the best possible engagement pattern when they do their squat or when they do their split squat or when they they do their bridging or whatever they're doing, right? So it's a way to transition in an ideal world from being in pain to being, you know, performing at your absolute best. And we have people, we have, you know, old ladies after hip replacements and we have kids who um, have neurological conditions and we've had pro athletes. Like I've recently, I put in a 300 pound CFL lineman in there and he's getting the same engagement pattern and benefit as my 75 year old who had a hip replacement and my 10 year old who has uh, CP. It's really cool. Wow. Yeah. Nice. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, and then on, on that note there, cause it, I know that takes a lot of clinical reasoning and I know you're big on clinical reasoning because I've seen some of your podcasts and some of the IG uh, TV and you, mm-hmm. you, um, I don't know if you're mentoring someone there, but you discuss clinical reasoning a lot. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate more on how myself, I can improve my clinical reasoning going forward because I'm obviously trying to be a good clinician just like yourself. Yeah. Um, but I need to take those steps to be become that. For sure, man. No, it's, to me, it's the, it's the linchpin. It's, it's the most important thing. Um, it's more important than the actual treatment techniques you use. We talked about that a little bit earlier, right? And I've talked about some of the specialized things that I use that, that I've found to work really well and, and I think work best compared to what is most out there. But the reality is, if you don't understand the true nature of the problem in front of you, you're, you're not going to get the, the kind of results that you um, desire and, and the, the results that we can and w- aspire to get for, for our patients who we really want to help. At the end of the day, we need, we need two things. We need an understanding of physiology and understanding the body that is reflected in what we actually know. So we need a very detailed understanding of the body. Um, and then the second piece is we need a process to determine exactly what's going on with our patients. Do you follow me? So the first step is if we don't understand how the body works, if you don't understand what inflammation is or what pain is or what movement requires or the connectivity between the metabolic system and the neurological system and then the muscular system, if we don't understand um, the concepts of efficiency of movement, if we don't understand that people can be asymmetrical and it's not related or correlated to their symptoms, um, if we don't think about all of that stuff and understand it, then it doesn't matter whether we understand stuff about the the patient or not. It's not going to be helpful because we need a foundation of physiology, anatomy, and just what functional movement is, can be, and and the spectrum of that. So that's the first step. A lot of that, we learn the foundation in school. Unfortunately, a lot of it is wrong. (laughs) Um, And curriculum has not evolved uh, as well as we would hope. Um, But it's better than it was for you than it was for me and, and it's continuing to improve and, and uh, I hope that will continue at, at a rapid rate of improvement. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's an entry-level program. They can't teach us everything. They can't be on the forefront of everything that's new um, because there's so much time to implement new curriculum changes, etc. Right? So we can't expect them to tell us everything, but they can start that process. Um, and it's, it's our job to find resources um, people, courses, uh, online information, um, you know, research that is more physiology-based rather than um, just treatment-based, right? Rather than saying, you know, does this exercise work for this symptom? Like, okay, well, what is, what is the physiology of those symptoms? What is the physiology of pain? What is the physiology of, of, of neuromotor control, for instance? Like, looking at that is actually much more valuable. But... So- yeah. Would you say you look at research in terms of like physiology for different things like pain and yeah, understanding that stuff is a lot more valuable than understanding how, um, you know, at least at your stage, I would say it feels counterintuitive because you want to be like, how do I treat this thing? But if you don't understand it, then how the hell are you going to treat it anyways? You know what I mean? Especially when you got time right now and you don't have something you're treating right in front of you. Um, yeah. Understand what pain is. Understand um what fascia is understand the connectivity of these different regions of the body 
um, understand functional movement and what efficient movement is and what inefficient movement is. Understand proprioception and how important that can be in in runners who maybe don't wear large, you know, who wear you know minimalistic shoes versus who have thick soles. Um, understand, yeah, understand kind of physiological uh, principles that underlie the treatment rather than the treatment itself. So rather than we found that um, shockwave helped with Achilles tendonitis or tendinopathy, like, okay, so what are the physiological principles underlying shockwave that might lead to the result? You have to ask two or three levels deeper than most people ask. Do you, do you see? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, shockwave works for this. Okay, but why? But no, but really, why? Not because it's sending ultrasound waves and it's, you know, it's causing an, an acute inflammatory response. But like, what is that response? Why is that important? Is there a way to generate that response in other people? When is it useful for us to use that response versus when it might be aggravating or counterproductive? Those are the kind of we have to ask ourselves those questions and and keep searching for those answers um, rather than just saying this works. And unfortunately, a lot of our profession is this works. And even when we find out later it doesn't work, we still stick to it rather than adjusting and adapting. So um, that all of that understanding is the first step. Um, in the meanwhile, and concurrently, we can be working on the second step. And the second step is trying to have a system so that we can get the right information about our patient to make the right conclusions about what to do next. And it can be very stepwise. That's what a lot of the mentorship stuff I've done is about. It's, okay, so this is the patient in front of you. You know, what information do you need to draw conclusions about what to treat, how it happened, and what to do next? And that, that starts from um, an inquisitive nature more than a, a solution-oriented nature. What that means is when a patient comes in and tells you, I have pain in my knee, you have to be diving very deep into why did this person experience pain in their knee? Now, sure, they were a rugby player and someone hit their knee and, you know, they went into valgus and that's why they ended up with an MCL sprain. Sure, pretty straightforward, right? But most of our patients, at least the most challenging ones anyways, typically have insidious onset symptoms, right? They didn't come from a trauma or the trauma was much less than the symptom or is the kind of trauma that, should have gotten better in two weeks and now it's been two years so what's different so what we need to try to do especially with those patients is really dive into why and not settle for the most superficial answer so with that person with knee pain you're like oh well you know it's because you have been walking more and it's like okay well lots of people walk so what's different about them that they can't tolerate walking as well or um someone who uh let me try to think of another another example um, someone who sprained their ankle and it's been two years and you're like, oh, well, you know, it's because they rolled their ankles. Like, yeah, but it's been this long. What's different about them? Um, or someone, a good, another good example, someone's got Achilles pain. You're like, oh, well, you've got a tight calf. Okay. I've seen lots of patients with tight calves. They don't all have Achilles pain. So what differentiates this patient with Achilles pain from the one who doesn't if they each have tight calves? So that's where you have to dive deeper into, well, what else could it be? What are my other options? And that's why it's informed by that first piece of the understanding how the body works. Because then you start to pick up other things that might be. Okay, posterior chain, the calf, hamstring, glute, back, all work as a unit. Oh, you've had an old back injury. Isn't that interesting? Okay, and you know, this hip on that same side is a lot tighter. Okay, so maybe that's influencing what's happening in the propulsion phase of gait and running on a micro level. And it's been... 10 years like that probably since your back started feeling tight and bothering you so over time slowly now you've developed this and oh by the way you also picked up squash so you combine two three or four things and now you've got a recipe or a more likely uh, under, uh, reason for why this person in front of you experiences symptoms so you need to have this clinical reasoning process to be able to go through those steps to get to what might be going on and how i can treat the entire problem not just the part that's complaining and that is the differentiator. Now, as I say all that, you're probably like, holy shit, 
I'm going to know a lot. Um, and yeah, you do. So, you know, you're, you're six months uh, into your journey of, of, of being a practicing physio and, you know, it'll take a long time to put that all together. But if you put that, you know, keep that mindset and then you add the other stuff, which I believe most physio grads already have, which is the empathy and the care for the patient and the communication where they try to, you know, demonstrate that they want to make it um, a relationship where you are creating an environment for them to succeed, but they need to do their part. All that stuff that I believe we come out of school with a great capability to do needs to be matched by proficiency and understanding. And I think what happens is that we make everyone, we blame everybody for not communicating as effectively as possible when really the problem is they just didn't understand what the hell is going on. And if you can understand it better, then that those efforts towards empathy and those efforts towards communication and those efforts towards self-efficacy become so much more effective. So taking more of a global approach as opposed to just looking at that general, that specific region, um, understanding exactly what's going on not just from face value, but like at the physiological level there, why this person in particular, as opposed to someone else who's doing the same exact activity, but doesn't have pain. Why is this particular individual experiencing their pain? Yeah. Can yeah. I, can I ask you a couple of, of clinical questions? Yeah, man. What have you got? So I've had, I had one patient. This is when I, when I started out back in September that I was seeing for some glute pain. And then he was also getting some shooting. So right glute pain, he was getting some shooting pain down the right side of his leg sometimes. Okay. Down past his, more, past his knee? Uh, no, above his knee. Okay. But just down back of his glute. Um, most of his symptoms were worse as soon as he sat down. So the onset of sitting down made things worse and like a shoot his pain down. And then after it had dissipated a little bit, but it was still intense. Um, it was pretty bad with walking as well. He was always limping. No real, he didn't say there was a mechanism of injury. He said that he does a lot of sitting for, cause he's retired now. So he does a lot of sitting and kind of mowing the lawn with his, I guess his mower there. Now that he's, now that he's retired, he should be way more active. <laughs> yeah. He's doing a lot more sitting now. Yep. Um, and from what I can remember treatment for, for me, pretty much I worked on his hips a little bit did some mobilizations to his back region because I figured maybe some of it's coming from his back there. Try to even do like a glute bridge and instantly would get that shooting pain in his leg, in his hip there. So we continued for a couple weeks and then he kind of just faded away and I never saw him again. And I didn't really know what the heck was going on with this guy. And that's when I knew um, it's going to be a long road at physio. (laughs) Hey, so first of all, the fact that that was in September, that was, what is that, like eight months ago? The fact that that patient stays in your mind tells me that you're going to be a good practitioner. I'll tell you why. Because it's so easy to dismiss it as, ah, you know, whatever, I didn't know what I was doing, or, ah, you know, it's his fault, or, oh, it's a weird case. Or, but for it to stay in your mind and for that to be the first one that you think of eight months later means it, it, it eats at you, it bothers you, it, it motivates you to solve the next next guy who comes in with glute pain, right? And that was how I always operated. Like, I still remember, like, at least a dozen cases from the first two, three years of practice that I couldn't fix. And now I'm like, oh, man, I wish that I could go back to that day because I could, cause so obviously that, you don't get that opportunity always, but the next patient through the door is. And I know for me, it was a big motivator to be able to solve the problems I couldn't. And not, I never was someone who would blame the patient. Even if, if they didn't do their exercises, I would never blame them for not doing them. It's like, you're not going to get better if you don't do it. So I was like, how can I motivate this person to do their exercise? What can I do despite them not doing their exercises? So first of all, that, that speaks very highly of, of your approach. I think a lot of people share that initially. Um, they have a tendency to lose it. So, so don't lose that. Don't lose it. I still get pissed off when I, when I have something that I missed or I, I could have done a little bit better or flared them up and I was like, oh, I should have, I knew I was going to think this way and I, I, I chose to go a different route. So keep that. That will definitely fuel your, your motivation and uh, your improvement. Um, in this specific case, though, um, the question is, um, in his specific case, why did he start to experience the symptoms? I want you, every patient comes in, why? So, let's, let's see if we can play this game. Why did he start to experience the symptoms? 
to be honest, I don't really know his why. What's your best guess? Well, my initial guess was that he was getting shooting pain going from his glute down to kind of his leg above his knee region. I don't quite remember actually if it was above or below his knee, but it was going down his leg. Okay. Um, and I figured he was con- – I initially came up with piriformis syndrome. I was thinking, okay, maybe he has tight piriformis there that's squeezing the sciatic nerve and then causing some pain to go down his leg. You just told me what. You didn't tell me why. Why did, what, why did he develop piriformis syndrome? Why? Okay, maybe because if you're sitting all the time. Okay. He's retired now. He's doing more mowing of his lawn. He likes to take care of it. He's sitting all day at home or if he's outside. Um, so I figured maybe sitting is compressing it a little bit and causing some of that pinching of the nerve. What percentage of people on earth do you think sit for long periods of time? A hundred percent. So, and, and what percentage of them have piriformis syndrome? Yeah. Okay. So sitting by itself isn't enough to explain the symptoms. The change in activity might, but we'd have to dive into, well, why? Why would his body respond poorly to a change in activity? You and I have been sitting on our asses more than the last little while. We don't have piriformis syndrome. Yeah. So carry on. What else? Um, so for him, that's honestly the only thing I can think of. I, I ruled out most of the sinister stuff, like cancer and all those infection and all that stuff there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rehab... What I find challenging sometimes is navigating the rehab world where people say that it's sometimes don't try to dive in too deeply into one thing because that can kind of take you on a whole different tangent as opposed to like hanging on to like the low, the low hanging fruit, right? You know, ever heard of that concept mm-hmm. of maybe something that's more plausible, maybe go with that as opposed to trying to make it more complex than it needs to be. So that's kind of where I thought, okay, maybe he's sitting more so um, that's causing his pain down his leg and I didn't try to dig any deeper into it I think um so again for someone who was in their first whatever you know first couple of years of practice that's what don't don't beat yourself up about it um that's a very fair approach the idea of not making things complex is bullshit in my opinion I think everything is complex I think every patient is complex the physiology of the you know how complex the body is you have any idea why would it be a simple problem to solve? Like, we've got this a massive network of things. Unless it's something very obvious, like he fell or whatever. It's got to be some complex series of events. This guy's, what, 65, 70? Like, yeah, he was older, yeah. So, like, are you, About 65. Okay, so what has happened to his body over the last 60 years that may have contributed to eventually leading to this symptom? Like, it's not as simple. So, it doesn't mean... It, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry, keep going. I was going to say, it could be so many different things. I think the idea of not make, not overcomplicating it is not overcomplicating it to the patient. Don't make it so difficult for them to grasp and understand what is actually happening to them. So don't dive into the deep physiology. Don't give them 40 exercises to do. Don't tell them it's 12 joints in their body ranging from their shoulder on the opposite side to their ankle on the same side. Like, Don't do that to them. But find a way to understand that complexity as best you possibly can and then also have the ability to communicate as effectively as possible what the patient needs to know to understand to buy in to move forward with your treatment plan so understand the complexity but then translate it into something straightforward that the patient can can actually use um, that is what i believe um, our approach should be. So yeah, you might give them three exercises, but you better understand exactly what's going on with their body and why you picked those three exercises. Right. Yeah. So for him, I, I remember now additional information. Uh, I think he grew up doing um, like working in the mines mm-hmm. or working in coal, yeah, coal mines. So he was doing a lot of that. So I don't know if that adds any further. You t- What do you think? If it was going to, how would it? Uh, might affect his back a bit more. A bit? Yeah. A lot more. a coal miner? It'll affect his back a lot more. So actually, yeah, when I figured out that he did some coal mine work, then I was thinking, okay, maybe there's I don't know, asbestos or something involved there or some sort of cancer. That's why I dived in a little bit further to see did anything metastasize from somewhere there to his back region slash glute or anything like that. 
Yeah, that's a good that's a good thought. I, I actually didn't even think of that. That's that's a that's a great connection. I I I you know I would have kind of generally screened for that anyways, but I wouldn't have had the specificity. So that's a that's a good catch. But um, yeah, bottom line is you know as a miner, dude, that is like one of the hardest physical jobs that exist on Earth. I think the hardest one is like a lumberjack, but a miner's got to be right up there, right? The percentage of like I think it's like the most de- those are two of the most deadly jobs you can have. Like you're better off being in like that like a like a marine or something. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's gonna be very physically demanding. And he maybe he only did it for five ten years. But like let's think about the physical demands that puts on his body, especially on his back, but his whole lower body especially. Um, and let's think about you know wear and tear on that level, which. Now is multiplied. Say he did it for 10 years from 20 to 30 or something like that. Okay. Well, then multiply that. Now he lived with that for the next 35 35 years, right? Whatever physical demands that entailed, he now had to continue to live for decades with those dysfunctions, structural or otherwise. That by itself is enough to put him in a vulnerable case by the time he's 65. Plus someone who's capable of doing mining work probably had a physical job outside of it, right? So that whole area is going to be under duress for a long period of time. It's going to make it more vulnerable. And, and from the level of his back, it's going to create changes in the nervous system and on a structural level that are going to make his hips, his back, maybe his knees especially, more vulnerable. That's part of the story for sure. Huge part of the story. But let's keep going though. Okay, so we understand now the history of his body. It's been under a lot of physical stress. That's still like, but he didn't have symptoms while he was doing that. At least he's not reporting it. Did do you, you recall him talking about history of back or hip related issues? Um, I don't fully remember. Okay. But that would be the first question because he, you know, as a general rule, someone who does that job for any period of time can't be a complainer, right? Yes. That's what, oh, now that you say that, he says he doesn't like regiments. So he doesn't like structured stuff. I was talking about, well, we're going to have to do some exercise here. He's like, well, I don't like regimen. I won't do any of these things anyways, blah, blah, blah. But he was very like heavy on, I, it's his way or no way and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the no complaining was also in there too. 100%. So look, I just, I, when you told me that, how much about his personality could I pick up over the video, right? let alone if you're there with him and you have a bit of a conversation. So in your mind, you have to think, okay, personality, all right, so whatever his symptoms are, for him to actually come in for treatment, it's got to be pretty bad, but not bad enough that he's willing to do whatever I say. So he's not crippled, but it's probably progressed. He's the kind of guy who probably it's been going on for decades, and now it's just worse. So now we have a different story. It's not someone who woke up one morning and has pain. This is someone who's had probably progressive issues over... 10, 20 years, maybe more, maybe less, but we certainly have to assume that he's had some issues for some period of time. So now it's different. It's very different than someone who woke up with pain because we're like, well, what changed? Okay, so now he's sitting around noticing it more. Now he's not moving his body. There's less blood flow, less stimulation, less stretching, less day-to-day activation of other muscles. So something's going to complain because it's been a change in activity. It's not increased load, it's actually decreased supply, if you will. Like, not increased demand, it's decreased supply. So whether it's tightness in his back or his hip that have developed more because he's not moving as much, or it's some sort of, um, you know, metabolic changes that have happened with his body that make him more sensitized as a whole. Or it could be as simple as he's paying attention to it more. He can't forget about it because he's sitting on his ass, whereas he could forget about it when he was working and other things going on in his life. Now that he doesn't, all he's focusing on is how this damn thing won't go away. Makes sense, right? So, okay, so in the next piece, right? Like I said earlier, I got to figure out techniques to help him because he's not going to do his exercises himself. Well, we have to pick the targets then. We have to understand that his back plays a big role. So what about his movement is dysfunctional there. Is he overusing his back extensors? Is he underusing his abdominal muscles? Is he, you know, is he uh, really restricted into hip extension or hip flexion such that when he goes into those positions, the symptoms come on? Um, you know, we have now a bunch of other things that we can look at, but we couldn't look at those to under- with any sort of clarity unless we understood him. 
you see why we need to go both ways with this? We need to understand him so we can use our physiology and, and functional movement understanding. But if we don't have the physiology and the functional movement understanding, we can't ask the right questions to figure out what his particular problem is. So we actually need to have both of those all the time. That's step one and step two. We need to have those and we need to integrate them every single time. So in his case, from an exercise standpoint and a treatment standpoint, we could think about his lower back, um, whatever manual stuff, mobilizations, if, that, if that's all you've got, um, any soft tissue release in that area, cupping in that area, anything you can do to improve the, the, the environment, the fascial environment, the soft tissue, the nervous system environment is lower back. Um, you know, working on hip range of motion, anything that's limited there is, is going to be uh, significant. Hip extension, hip flexion. Exactly. So anyone who's got severe limitation of hip extension and rotation, you know, you really have to think about what's the quality of this hip joint. And maybe it's just the hip joint is done. Did, did he have x-rays by chance? Um, don't remember. Okay. I w I'm not, in his case, I would never send him for x-rays unless he was like total, unless it was my last resort. I'm like, he's not listening to me. I need to explain to him how bad this is. Otherwise, he's not going to buy in. I, I don't usually recommend it, for, especially for someone like him. But at the same time, there are there are cases where you're like, okay, just you need to go get this looked at because I need to, to have more clarity. But if he's severely limited in hip range, yeah, you gotta you gotta um, at least assume that there's some arthritic changes in there that are affecting his functional movement pattern and creating some of the symptoms, at least to some degree. Um, so yeah, so working on all of those things, the hip mobility, the activation of those muscles, core strengths, you know, reducing tension in the areas where there's increased tension, uh, and then the movement quality as best as you can, right? So whether it's squat pattern, whether it's getting him walking, get, just get him off, off his ass more. Like, dude, you're, you're not retired, you know, retired doesn't mean sitting around. Like you've always been a guy who's moved around. That's really important to you. You know, you need to find a way to, to move. I don't care. Like, what, what do you like to do that's active? How can we get you doing it more? You know, I know you don't want to listen to what I have to say, but just going for a walk every day with your wife, now that you're both retired, is that good? Or do you hate your wife and you'd rather go on your own? Like, whatever it is, like, you got to keep peeling it until you figure out what his thing is that he's interested in doing that he's actually going to get engaged. Oh, he likes to go to car shows. Okay, well, every weekend, you know, on Saturday, like, drive into town and walk around the car show for, for an hour and, you know, chat with the buddies who got the old, you know, cruisers. Like, be creative about what it is for them. But at the end of the day, um, you have to kind of understand the big picture and then it's a lot easier to convince him to do something because you can explain the full story. If you're just like, maybe it's because you're sitting, he's not going to be bought in. If you're like, listen, this is exactly what's happened. It's been like this for a long time. I understand it. Most people wouldn't be able to suffer, wouldn't be able to suffer with the pain you have over time. I know you're a tough guy, way tougher than me, but at the end of the day, you know, it was going to reach a point where it's going to start to bother you more. The really the only way to address it is through a combination of getting you moving and us addressing some of the underlying problems that have gotten you here. We can do that, but we're going to have to do it together. Otherwise, you know, what's it going to look like in 20 years? Like how, what is, how do we make sure that you're still moving the way you want to be if we can't, can't do that? So, you know, because we understand the problem, I'm not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. But if you can agree with me to do one and two, then I'll be able to, to make some improvements in your symptoms and give you all the tools you need. Now, could you do that in your first month of school? Hell no. Could I? Hell no. But that's how you can start to see the clarity of the situation as you start to go through. And, and that's what you should be aspiring to try to try to be able to communicate and for you to be able to understand. Perfect. That was nice and elaborative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because even it, you haven't seen this patient and you, <laughs> you already know what's going on pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's what's been really cool um, about this the, this approach that I use, but also as I've been doing this mentorship stuff and as I really emphasize and educate on the clinical reasoning piece is I'm realizing that I know my approach works because I can listen to you tell the story, give you advice just from you telling it, you go and do that, you get the results. It's like, okay, well, my approach that I do in my clinic isn't because of my placebo effects of acupuncture because I can tell somebody else to do the same thing and they're getting the same results that they weren't getting before. And the clarity of understanding if they're not using acupuncture, you're using other techniques. So it's it's cool that I've been able to really identify that there are patterns that we can identify in patients. And if we have the knowledge and we focus on the details that we can get consistently better results than we're currently getting. It's cool.
Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that was pretty good. That's what I do, man. I uh, I love it. That's again, that's what the clinic is built on, and and I've been I've been really um, lucky to have some amazing people who work with me and and get them even better by going through these cases. Like if if they have difficult patients, they come in, we talk them out, they go back and do it, they come back. Like, so I've had a lot of reps of this kind of secondhand treatment, if you will, and and it's been been really beneficial to to a lot of people, and I'm really happy to help out people whenever I can. And how does the, your mentorship work? How does one sign up and stuff like that? Yeah, so I was doing that over the last year, and I've kind of taken a, a mini step back over, um, over the last couple of months. Um, but essentially, what it was, it, uh, or what what it is, is uh, like a different video chat mentorship uh, situations like this. I was doing a combination of group and individual stuff. I'm going to do a bunch of free stuff, especially during the shutdown and whatever. So I've got one tomorrow afternoon. Um, we're, we're focusing on, on hip flexors. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, tomorrow, 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 4.30. Um, but uh, yeah, essentially uh, the, the one-on-one stuff would be exactly what we just went through. Um, we sat down and like, hey, so what have you got for me? And like, well, I got this case or I have this question about this area of the body. And we just go back and forth for an hour, you know, once every two weeks, you know, answering all these specific questions that people have ranging from, um, you know, how do I solve this difficult case to, I was doing this, but I didn't quite understand why I got the results. That's a really interesting one. It's like, it got better, but I'm not sure why they got better. Um, so a lot of these kinds of discussions, and then it narrows into a specific part of the body. I just need to assess shoulders better. What am I missing? Or, um, you know, this, this kind of symptom I always struggle with, what are the commonalities here? Um, so that's kind of what I was doing in the individual and the group was, was, uh, essentially a similar version of that, just kind of allocating energy to different people over the course of the time, but everyone learns from the communal experience. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it was less technical, how to assess, how to treat, how to put a needle in here, how to do this exercise and more about the thinking process. And that was really cool that I found that people are getting better results just by me, you know, helping them along that process of understanding. And I really do believe after seeing those results and just in general, that if you understand the problem better, whatever tool you have at your disposal, you're going to be more effective at it. If you just adjust people, you're just Cairo and you, all you do is adjust. Like if you understand the problem better, you'll be able to come up with a better treatment plan to that effect. Um, so I, 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 I honestly believe that if we understand the problem better, it'll get better results. And then it'll also guide you to what areas you need to improve upon. How can I get better results now that I understand that it's more neurologically based to this nerve or this area of the body? What can I do to treat this area better? Well, what courses or what techniques might be beneficial to me? So I think it, I think we have to have to look at it from that perspective, and it goes a long way to to um, solving the the big picture of helping as many patients as we can. Perfect. Yeah. Do you know when uh, you're going to start up back some mentoring? Well, as I said, for now, we're going to try to do just uh, as much uh, free stuff as possible and, and help others as much as we can. Um, my hope is that once the once things kind of settle down and, and we're re, uh, re kind of open for visits with the clinic and whatever, then we can get into a bit more of a routine. But um, uh, in the meanwhile, I'm going to try to try to get on a couple times a week and, and have these little mini sessions like this uh, with groups and just discuss different topics that are going to be relevant. So I want people to to just kind of pay attention to that for now and, and take up all the free learning that they can and and uh, we'll see where we go from there. Perfect. Sounds good? Yeah, sounds good. All right, man, well, let's, uh, let's do this again. I'm really happy to, to help any way that I can. Uh, hopefully you got a lot out of that and, and there's a lot. Good, there's a lot more where that came from. So uh, I'm happy to help you in any way that I can. Thank you, thank you, Dad. All right, man, I'll talk to you soon. Bye, Take it easy. Have a good one. You too.